and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angle on these different issues. Last week, I interviewed Jay Collins from Citi on the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings, and we talked about a variety of different topics. And one of them we talked about was debt relief for the poorest countries or debt relief for countries that are in trouble. I received some feedback on that. Main feedback was, could you go a little deeper on debt relief issues? So what I thought I would do today is provide a little bit of context about how do countries get into these problems, a little bit of history, not the history going back to the 1970s or something like that, but the history as in what's been happening over the last few years, what are the problems, why is this a concern in the international community, and then a little bit on where do we go from here. So let me just start with some basics, and I apologize to anybody in the audience who knows this stuff better than I do, probably. Sovereign countries obviously borrow money. They borrow money to pay for things, to finance projects, to finance deficits. That's what we do here in the United States all the time. The difference between the United States and countries, particularly in emerging markets and even more over countries that are lower income countries, is they cannot borrow that much in their own domestic currency. So they have to borrow in external currencies. So this is called external debt once that happens. The poorest, most vulnerable countries largely, not completely, but largely borrow from three types of creditors. And I'm going to go through this in a little bit more detail, but there's multilateral creditors. Those are kind of international organizations. There are bilateral official creditors. Those are countries that actually lend money. And then there are private creditors, which is a little more obvious. So let's talk about all three categories and a little bit of the subcategories. Multilateral creditors. So if you look at countries that are the poorest countries and are most vulnerable and the ones that we talk about most often for kind of getting debt relief, over 40% of their borrowing is from multilateral creditors. This would include the International Monetary Fund, as well as the multilateral development banks, largely the World Bank, but also other regional development banks. The second category, as I mentioned, was the official bilateral creditors. That's around a little over 30% of the borrowing by these countries is from them. And that, in the past, used to always be countries that were in the Paris Club. Now, the Paris Club is made up of over 20 countries. It includes the United States and France and Japan and the United Kingdom, Russia even, although probably not as much as it used to be in the past, and a number of other countries. But then there are countries that are non-Paris Club countries. The Paris Club was formed way back in the 1950s and has a whole set of ways of trying to do debt workouts for borrowing countries, different rules and procedures that have been created over the last 40 or 50 years. And while they welcome other countries into the Paris Club, not all countries want to join. So that's where we get the non-Paris Club creditors that have become much more significant over time. These include India, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, but probably and most importantly and prominently China. And so if you actually look at it right now on the, as I mentioned, official bilateral creditors are owed about 30% of the pot of money by these countries. Well, almost half, it's actually 45%, is 
owed to China. So they are by far the biggest country from a lending perspective for the poorest countries. For the private sector, the private sector is owed a little less than 30%. So a bit lower than the official bilateral and pretty significantly lower than multilateral creditors. That 30% can basically be broken up into two buckets. Banks, who do cross-border lending, and bondholders, who are basically the countries will issue bonds, and those bonds are owned by asset managers, banks, pension funds, insurance companies, etc. It's kind of evenly split between cross-border lending and bonds. All right, so with some of those basics, countries run into debt problems. Now, they run into debt problems for a variety of different reasons. Some of them might be macroeconomic reasons. Some of them may be things go against them for whatever reason, a war by Russia and Ukraine, a pandemic, trying to deal with climate change so you raise up your fiscal spending. But when they get into debt problems, there's usually two types of problems. There's one that's called liquidity, and there's one that's called solvency. Liquidity is essentially that you can't meet your bills over a, a short time frame, and you need some relief from that. Solvency means you're not going to be able to meet your bills for a long period of time, and you just need something. You need a restructuring of your debt and potentially the stock of your debt, because otherwise you'll never grow enough to outlast your debt. So when people talk about debt restructuring, they usually think of a few different ways of doing it. There is something called just a pure service restructuring, which is really just cash flow relief. You take claims that are falling due over a small period of time, and you restructure those claims over a much longer period of time. So you haven't lowered the debt stock, but you have basically said, you don't need to pay now, but you will need to pay later. A different form of this is called a reprofiling of your debt. And so all that means is you're basically taking the debt stock and the flows that are falling due, and you basically say, that stock is now, we've reprofiled it. And so instead, you're going to have $10 falling due this year, $8 the next year, seven, then four, then two, then one. It's going to be zero for about three or four years. But then the 10, the 7, the 8, the 4, the D to do will all happen. It just happens at a much longer time frame outward. And then the last one that you hear about is called debt reduction. So that's obviously you reduce the stock of the debt that is coming due to certain creditors. It can be done first on a nominal basis, which basically means you owe me 100, now you owe me 80. So nominal, you had a 20% discount. Or you can do it on, in the way that financial people do it, is on a net present value basis. So you're basically seeing what is your debt falling due over a time frame. You reduce it, and then what is the, using a discount rate, how do you then fall, find your reduction? Okay. So what happened kind of starting with COVID back in 2020? The international community's official sector launched what was supposed to be a program to help countries, the poorest countries, with expenses that were falling due due to COVID. And so the initiative was called DSSI, which stands for Debt Service Suspension Initiative. And it was for over 70 countries, or at least it was eligible for over 70 countries. So this was not supposed to be a major debt reduction initiative. Instead, it was a debt service initiative, so a liquidity provision. 
it wasn't based on any financial analysis. It was based on a feeling. The feeling was, boy, we've had a pandemic. We need to help the poorest countries. Let's provide them some cash flow relief. And so there was sort of a one-size-fits-all type of approach to these 70 countries. Now, on the positive side, almost 50 countries took advantage of this initiative and at least pushed off, they didn't get rid of it, but they pushed off over $13 billion of payments in 2020 and 2021. So that's actually pretty good. But there were some downsides. One downside was the one-size-fits-all point of view. A lot of countries, well, a lot of creditors don't want that. And also debtors don't necessarily want it. Part of this is driven by how the world has changed over a number of years. You have a lot different variety of creditors. I mentioned the importance of China, but also just you have different types of private creditors. You have a different types of borrowers. You have instruments that are much more complicated than used to be the case. And maybe most importantly, at least from a perspective on the DSSI, there wasn't really private sector involvement in this. Now, the private sector said that they were willing to involve. We at the IIF work with the private sector on this. But a lot of borrowers didn't want to take advantage of this because they were fearful of losing access to capital. Now, what does that mean? So when you say that you want a suspension to your payments, that's basically a default. And if you default, your credit is lowered in terms of by credit rating agencies, which makes it much harder to borrow in the future or much more expensive to borrow. Many of the countries that are in the DSSI initiative had worked for years to get access to capital, capital to fuel development, to improve living standards, to reduce poverty, what have you. And they didn't want to lose that. And so the DSSI initiative never really touched upon the private sector. And it wasn't because the private sector said, don't talk to us. It was mainly because there was this kind of fear of losing market access. But there were countries out there that didn't just have a liquidity problem. They had something that was closer to a solvency problem. And so the official creditors came up with a different framework. And they actually called it the common framework. So the common framework was put in place in some respects because some countries had just gotten themselves into larger and larger indebtedness problems. In fact, by IIF data, there was almost a tripling over a 10-year period in how much debt these countries had taken on. But the main part of the common framework was this conversation between the Paris Club and the non-Paris Club. So in other words, it really had not much to do with the private sector. It didn't really have that much to do with anybody outside of the Paris Club and non-Paris Club. So there were some positive things about the common framework. First of all, it was instead of a one-size-fits-all, it was supposed to be done on a case-by-case basis. Secondly, it was based on actual financial information as opposed to a feeling. And third, the private sector would be involved at a later point through something called a comparability of treatment, which is basically the idea that If you treat one creditor a certain way, you should treat all creditors a certain way. It's a very complicated subject, but that's basically kind of what how it was supposed to work. So here we are, two years later. Three countries essentially have been in the common framework: Zambia, Ethiopia, and Chad, and they've been in there for two years. Now, two years is not exactly quick on trying to work out your debt situation. 
it's been painfully slow. There's a number of reasons for it. I don't want to throw dispersions on anyone, but it just hasn't worked is the main thing. So late last year and early this year, the IMF wanted to kickstart the issue. And so they put together the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable. This is what Jay and I had a small discussion about last week. And I think I said last week, the, one of the positive things is that the Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable did something that had not been the case in the past. They brought together all the major actors here. And what does that mean? That means not just the official sector bilateral creditors and the multilateral creditors, again, the IMF and the World Bank, but also the private creditors and giving the private creditors a little more voice in what was going on. But maybe more importantly, the borrowers. So the borrowing countries actually are going to be there and explaining the problems they have and what's going on. So at the IMF World Bank meetings, this group, which the IIF is part of, came up with a couple of ways forward. One area, which had been controversial, again, more arguments between the official sovereign creditors than, again, the private sector or the borrowers, for that matter, was the role of the multilateral development banks. There were some countries that thought MDBs should also restructure their claims. As I noted earlier, they're one of the biggest creditors, if not the biggest creditor in some countries. The reason why this has not happened is for a few reasons. First and probably foremost is these institutions provide new money. So they don't get their claims rescheduled because they are going to take care of it on a net basis by providing new money and hopefully on a very positive net basis. And secondly, they have what is called preferred creditor status. That means they are the most preferred creditors and the last to take a hit in sort of a bankruptcy claim. I should have said this earlier. There is no such thing as bankruptcy when it comes to sovereign debtors, and that's why they have to come up with all these crazy rules. In order to unlock that problem of those that wanted it to be rescheduled and those that think, no, the MDBs should be protected and provide new money, the MDBs have said that they will provide more grants in particular towards those poorest countries. Now, if you think about what a grant is, a grant means that you're getting a loan with debt relief built in. That's all a grant is. You don't have to pay it back. This, I think, is going to solve that problem. It's not guaranteed, but I think it should solve that problem. The second area that there was agreement on is there needs to be greater transparency. And so what this means is, so the IMF works with a country to come up with a program. So the program is going to do a few things. It bring in new money from the IMF, the World Bank, and maybe some others, explain how the debt's going to get worked out, explain why there should be provided new money, so better fiscal monetary policy. But all of this comes up, and then they make a bunch of assumptions to come up with what's called a debt sustainability analysis, a DSA. The concern was there wasn't much transparency about how these assumptions were derived. And the idea going forward is that private sector institutions who are involved in those countries and have a lot of knowledge in these areas should have a little more transparency as to what actually is being done. And so there seemed to be agreement that that should be the case going forward. Now, there will be details to be worked out, but I think there did seem to be a large agreement that you can't just 
protect all this information and not provide it to those that are very involved and have a stake in the game. The third area and the area that is going forward is a bunch of technical issues. One of them is actually not that technical, which is how do you make all of this process more timely instead of being stuck in a debt workout vortex for the last two years, you actually find a way to be able to move countries forward. And so the idea of trying to come up with timelines, deadlines, what have you, which is not really that technical, that has not been worked out. And so in May, the IMF is bringing together technical experts to look into how can we do that going forward. We at the IIF have some ideas on that, and we're going to be putting those forward. They may not be the ideas that are accepted, but we want to try to think through that. The more technical issues are the issues about comparability of treatment. How do you really do that between government actors and private actors? The debt perimeter, what does that mean? Well, a lot of these countries have taken on more domestic debt. So that's local currency debt, which I think is probably from a development perspective is a very positive thing. But Sometimes it actually affects what you can do from a payments perspective. So how do you deal with that? There needs to be issues around debt transparency. There's a weird concept that's very important in kind of workouts and bankruptcy, which is called a cutoff date. There's ways that that can be moved around and that can change how we look at it. A lot of these issues we at the IAF have worked on for many years, and we have ideas, and we've put forward a lot of those ideas in something called the Principles for Stable Capital Flow and Fair Debt Restructuring, something that we've done for really close to 20 years, and we've updated it back in 2022, and hopefully there's some areas in there that could help this process along. So now it's time for the three, two, one. These are the three summary points from today's podcast. Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact. The three summary things are first and maybe foremost is debt workouts are complicated, really complicated. And the idea, and there are ideas out there of a silver bullet coming along and trying to actually work through this with all the different actors, the different judgments, the different incentives. People think that they can do that. They're fooling themselves. It's just very complex. Second, it is important to listen to the borrowers in these situations. Sometimes the borrowers have different angles on how to do things. Sometimes they get very angry, sometimes at the private creditors and maybe at the official creditors, but it is important to listen to them. They do want market access, but they also want to be treated fairly. And so that's something that I think we need to keep in mind. And then third, the IMF process that they have put forward has moved the ball forward, but only a modicum of progress is made. So there's still a lot more to do. The two things I'm looking forward to, the first is maybe a few of the individual country cases I mentioned earlier, plus now Ghana could get worked out in a fairly quick manner so that these countries could kind of start working on building their economies without having this debt overhang. And second, the May meetings I mentioned that are technical, but hopefully could start coming up with some solution set. And as Jay Collins told us last week, we should move that along even faster than maybe I had even anticipated. My one sports fact of the week. So playoff time is a great time for sports fans. And it started 
in the United States. It started in basketball in the NBA, hockey in the NHL. In the UK this weekend, they're doing the semifinals of the FA Cup. And soon they'll be doing in, in European soccer, the Champions League semifinals. So it's hard to pick from all those playoffs as to what to talk about. So I wanted to talk about something slightly different, which is there are lots of different sports are created and they're created in a specific country and those countries become dominant in that sport for a while, but then they become more global. And the one sport that was created in the United States and has largely been dominated by American athletes for the last century is basketball. The best players almost always came from the United States. The United States used to win the Olympics almost all the time, not all the time, but most of the time. But there had always been an effort by the NBA, particularly in the last few decades, to make this a global game and not just an American game. Well, now that really has happened. The most valuable player award in the NBA for the last four years has gone to somebody from a foreign country. In the 60 previous years, only four times had a non-American won it. But now it's been four times in a row. Twice by Nikola Jokic from Serbia, and twice by Giannis, I hopefully pronounce his name right, Antetokounmpo from Greece. This year, there are three finalists for the Most Valuable Player Award, and not one of them is an American. Those first two people I just mentioned, plus Joel Embiid, who is originally from Cameroon. I actually think Joel Embiid's going to be the winner. But whatever the case is, it's really interesting and exciting for somebody like me who works at a global organization, loves the game of basketball, loves also that it got invented in the United States, but also loves to see that a number of people from around the world have become even better at it than my fellow Americans. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener, as I tried to do just this week. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.